To the Vegas Gang podcast for August 17th, 2012. The Vegas Gang is a roundtable discussion show for issues related to casinos in Las Vegas, Macau, and the rest of the world. The show is desperately in need of a new catchphrase, so please write in and give me some suggestions. <laughs> um, I'm going to go around the virtual table and introduce the guys. We have Chuck Monster, the editor-in-chief at VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? Not a mucho. It is a beautiful afternoon, and I'm just so happy to be here with you guys. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, <laughs> Dr. Dave Schwartz, the director of UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing great. <laughs> that is so great. <laughs> My name is Hunter, and I create an app for the iPhone and the iPad called Vegas Mate that you can download today. All right, here we go. Um, we want to start off with some announcements, and namely, really, just one announcement. There's only really one piece of information you need to know as you go into a packed fall and then holiday season, and that is the Vegas Internet Mafia Family Picnic. Um, that's going to be on October 13th. That's a Saturday for those of you keeping score at home, uh, at Valley's in the Indigo Lounge, which is on the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, so those of you that were there last year, I think you've got a pretty good idea of what to expect. You'll see a live version of this show with our special guest, Derek Stevens, who just that very weekend will be, uh, going through the grand reopening of his property downtown called The D. We'll also have our good friends from 500 by Midnight who will be bringing their own special brand of Midwestern humor to the Las Vegas Strip. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Match Game VT. We can't really divulge any details of the match game, but uh, those of you that were around last time know it's sure to be a hip hop and Rick Rollin' good time. <laughs> and Stump Dr. Dave. Our own Dr. Dave of the Vegas Gang will be there to answer, or not, your trivia questions. We can't wait. <laughs> Saturday, October 13th, right on the Strip of Bally's in the Indigo Lounge. You can get more information at VegasInternetMafia.com. Did I miss anything? I think you did. What did I miss? I think you missed telling people how completely, awesomely outstanding it's going to be. Oh, it's going to be completely, awesomely outstanding. I mean, like, this is, if you could get, if you could tap into the spirit world and have the ghost of Elvis doing a duet with the ghost of Frank Sinatra, I don't think it would still approach what we're going to be having here. It's going to be like, like lightning in a bottle. It's going to be simply, you've got just got to be there. I Kind of like Aria, I think words will fail you. You've I like your enthusiasm, Dr. Dave. I like your enthusiasm. Especially a man of uh, your intellect and your educational background. If words are going to fail you, imagine the simpletons. They'll have no way to grasp with what's going to happen. <laughs> Seriously, it's going to be a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun last year, um, and we expect to have a lot of fun again this year. Um, I know a lot of you have already said you're going to be coming, which is awesome. We're really thrilled. We can't wait to be there with you guys, and I think I can speak for the, the five hundies as well. I think it's going to be a great time. Uh, so we really encourage you to come, and, and like we said, all the information is at VegasInternetMafia.com, uh, such as it is. So be there uh, Saturday, October 13th. Should be a great time. Can't wait to see you all. So from there, we go right in to the meat of our program here. Um, specifically, I think we want to roll off with 
Steve Wynn, completely lost his mind or just massive EDM fan? Um, <laughs> the Wynn organization uh, launched a new website the other day. Um, I don't wish I had the press release in front of me, but uh, basically it's uh, – what is it? now I can't even remember the URL. I am so well prepared for this. Uh, you can't even believe – Winsocial.com. Winsocial.com, yes. So actually, Chuck, why don't you wrote about this? So why don't you give me a quick rundown of what Winsocial is all about and why I would want to go there? Yeah, well, you know, I think the intention here is to create a social hub for people who go to the clubs. And uh, it's kind of, uh, they, they've taken all of their social media feeds, their Instagram, their Pinterest, their AppNet, their <laughs> MySpace, their Facebook, their Myriad Twitter accounts, their uh, Path, their <laughs> – is there something else I'm missing? Oh, probably. Uh, uh, they've, they've put them Chinese all into a gigantic funnel – on one page on a website, and this is absolutely the most ludicrous and ridiculous thing. They've sur- they've surrounded it also with a, just a whole bunch of kind of who are like look at the studly uh, basketball players acting all mean and and stuff in the club, and here's the two cool, awesome, groovy guys who are responsible for all this, and we're so slick and awesome. It's it's got to be the 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 highest level of pretentiousness I've ever seen in a marketing program. And the, 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 the basics here, the fact that they took their social media stuff, stuff that exists on people's primarily on people's mobile devices, and they've put it on a desktop website proves that they have thoroughly have absolutely no idea what they're doing. They don't understand the technology as it is. So it's, it's yet again another insane, high-budget, uh, masturbatory failure of the Wynn organization. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm baffled by this. And you know what? It not, I'm not a big fan of the clubs. I actually like a lot of electronic music. That's not really the point here. It's just it's the, the pretentiousness coming out of the nightclubs is so absolutely, utterly monstrous. It's huge. It's megalithic. It makes me not ever, ever, ever want to go there. And I'm the world's largest, tallest, widest, and heaviest Roger Thomas fan. And I, I would do anything to see his work because uh, it makes me happy. And I'm considering never going in that building again because cause Steve's lost his mind and he's let these, these nightclub promoters basically run roughshod over the property and make people think that they're responsible for the whole thing. It's like sort of, it's sort of like a really trashy, win-centric version of like Us Weekly on the yeah. web. Um, hmm. Basically, yeah. You know, it's funny. You you touched on part of why I I saw this and I had an immediately bad reaction. Um, I mean, I I was – I'm both equal parts unsurprised and disappointed um, (laughs) because honestly, if I go back however many years it's been now, a lot of years, to why I started uh, sort of writing about Las Vegas and caring about Las Vegas and learning about Las Vegas, Steve Wynn honestly was a huge part of that attraction. I yep. thought I saw him as a visionary genius, someone that 
uh, really got it, had really great tastes, really always wanted to put the customer first, even if it wasn't the most profitable thing, believing that it was the right way to run a business. Um, somebody that – I wrote a, lo- a post a long time ago about 360-degree design, and it was I'm talking about the Bellagio and the fact that if you go stand on um, on Frank Sinatra back there and look at the back of the building, it's got just as much ornate design as the front of the building, and that's a sign of somebody that really cares about – they they take pride in the prod, in the finished product. It's not just all about how can we extract the most money from every square foot that we're building because they no. didn't have to do that, right? These are spaces that are only seen by employees, and they are um, they were still in, injected with care yeah. and love, and it just seems like that Steve Wynn has disappeared. And you see it again and again. And I understand that casinos need to respond to changing market conditions. And that they are trying to – I would assume that they're – believe that they're trying to serve a market that they feel that they're uniquely suited to serve. But it's not the Steve Wynn and Wynn organization that I – as I was growing up in the whole Las Vegas um, media in world, it's not the one that I came to appreciate and to admire. And – it's sad. It's honestly, it's sad for me because I used to say that there were three people I wanted to work for: Steve Wynn, Steve Jobs, and myself. Uh, and I, <laughs> and I, I'm down to myself. Um, so, it, and you know, one of them died. The other one is basically, I mean, more more or less is. This, I think the soul of Steve Wynn, the one that built these incredible places. It's she just seems like such a different guy. And this is just another, you know, another example of me being out of touch with what the direction that they seem to be going in. And that makes me sad. I don't think they've had a really good handle on any part of the social media, digital stuff for a very long time. I think, you know, remember the whole new website? Yeah, of course. It was like, so I think this is sort of part of that same, Part of the same problem. And I think what it is is that you've got a guy with an incredible attention to detail in very traditional areas, so architecture, customer service, you know, very focused on that. And I don't think that he views any of this, you know, anything that involves pixels as being part of that. So I think he's probably just farmed this out and doesn't know and doesn't care about. And I think a lot of that's a generational thing. That's a good point. Honestly, Dave, I think it is a good point. Um, it's easy. Steve actually is really good at projecting a very youthful attitude about himself and surrounds himself with younger people. And I think um, it's easy to forget that he is uh, not in the generation of the web by a long shot, right? So I think it's probably um, not unfair to say that you know it's, there's a good chance that he just really doesn't get this stuff. And... and probably to some degree doesn't care and trusts people he's hired to do it for him. I, unfortunately, I think uh, maybe they have steered him wrong. And it's, it, I'm sure that if they, if you look at their financials, you would say, you guys are crazy. This is working. They're making a ton of money on this. Um, these people are doing exactly what they should be doing. But I think that misses the point to a large degree. I think if you lose sense of exactly who you are, then you know, it's easy. It's easy to make short-term financial gain uh, by by sacrificing sort of your long-term core values, 
And um, this, these, all of these things seem to run counter to the kind of experience that I thought the brand was about. Ultimate luxury, escapism. I mean, I guess you could say this is escapism. But to me, this is like you're creating like a trashy Ibiza on the Las Vegas Strip. I mean, it's just so it, – it, it runs so counter to the image that I felt like they had worked really hard to cultivate through Bellagio. Hey, take us seriously. Las Vegas can be a luxury destination. We can take as good a care of you as any hotel in the world to win. You know, we're going even above and beyond that. We don't even need themes to do it anymore. We can just be innately luxurious and sophisticated to, you know, oh, we're just going to play DJ, you know, music super loud and uh, try and manipulate um you know the whole vibe and and fill the place with with young club people. I just I don't get it. I know that makes me sound really old, but it just I just don't get it. Well, you're not old, Hunter, but it's it's not your thing. And this is kind of a little bit of a narrow casting is what they're doing, and they're putting a lot of money in it. You know this this thing actually reminded me of two other little bits of information. Well, one small bit and one big bit. Uh, the small bit is I've heard from inside source that. Wynn pays about $4 for each bottle of Grey Goose that they sell. That's their costs. <laughs> I'm sure that sounds right. And they right. sell those for, you know, 400 bucks. Yeah. That's a <laughs> – you do the math. <laughs> that's quite a hefty margin, and there's no, you know, there's no risk involved in that. Now, granted, the margin is eaten up by, you know, the DJs who are making a pretty penny off of this. This whole thing, too. And the second thing is it reminded me of Dave's recent article about his Atlantic City boardwalk homecoming. Um, and I don't know if you want to jump in, Dave, with that. But, but yeah, well, it, it we're going to get into that in a, a second. But you tell, give us a – It made it me think of, of, of a lot of that stuff. It's like with, with – Gambling now, even more of it in Maryland and Pennsylvania and everywhere else in the universe. Now they got live dealers in North Carolina, Harris. Uh, you know, the whole idea of going to Las Vegas for gambling fun, gambling-centered sort of vacation is is done. It's gone. It's over with. And it's killed Atlantic City. And I think Dave's sort of theory that – Eventually, that this is going to, you know, we're going to see Las Vegas as a declining market, not a growing market. Uh, I think it holds a lot of water. The Las Vegas that was already is declining. You know, that's downtown. Las Vegas as it was 20 years. If you look at what Las Vegas was when the Mirage opened, that's basically downtown and that's been in decline for about 20 years. You know, the Las Vegas that's grown is something totally new and different, and that is what's, you know, a lot of that's because they're hitting at this new demographic, which, as Chuck said, is very lucrative if you can get them in there. So I think that's part of it. It's interesting to me because I think there's two issues here. One of them is how well they embrace all kinds of, all things, social media, digital. The other one is the clubification so my question to both you guys, and I'll let you both pick one. Imagine that you've got two minutes at executive committee meeting, you know, let's say Tuesday. When's executive committee meeting on Tuesday? Steve is there. You've got two minutes to make the case for a more robust social media presence, more authentic one, 
or against the clubification? What would you say? I'd probably go against the clubification. The social media doesn't matter because if you provide a good product, the people will do the social media for you. I think the anti-clubification is the easy, easy one, the easier case to make, right? I mean, especially if you look at um, these clubs are big profit centers, but they're not the biggest profit center. And I think you still run a significant danger in turning off some of your biggest customers that don't like loud music all hours of the night. Because um, no matter how hard they try, they never make these buildings soundproof enough. Everybody that stays in any of these hotels knows that they're hearing this music all night long. Um and so I think there's a potential harm to your real core business. On the social media front, though, I mean, I think I do think it. I do think it is important. But I think that most of these places get it mostly wrong uh, because they're not very authentic. They try to pretend that problems don't exist um, when they do. I mean, I think social media oppor- gives a good opportunity to connect with your customers that are having a bad experience, and it gives it gives you um, tools to try and correct things almost in real time that you didn't really have before. Um, and I think that's great if they're used that way, but most of these places use them, uh, as a giant funnel where they try and collect all this information, but they never, they try, they try and pretend like none of the bad stuff ever happened. So instead of owning it and being honest, they try and project this sort of everything's perfect and rosy face all the time, um, which is not very honest. Right. And that's part of the way that these guys do their social media that I've never thought was all that, all that compelling. Some people do a better job than others. You know, there's a uh, the, the guy who does the Aria one. When they had their big computer meltdown, he was trying to soothe people, you know, with tweets. And when people have a problem, he asked, what's your room number? You know, problems with your room, what's your room number? We're going to send you a direct message. You know, they actually do a little bit of that back and forth. A lot of it is really just – it's just – you know, casino marketing. Well, hotel right. marketing, they see it as an extension marketing. of their existing marketing, which I think is a misunderstanding of the differences in the people who use it, the way that they use it. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's interesting. Wynn is another good example. They had a team of people a few years back that um, got to, I got to know a little bit, some of them, and my impression of them was that many of them were really smart. They were young people that were using these tools anyway, and they had a, a grasp. And I think they had a vision for what they wanted to do. Um, but, you know, changes in leadership at when basically meant that all those people got fired or left and were replaced with the team that's in there now. And I honestly, I couldn't tell you who the people are there are now because when you call them and ask for press information or email them for press information, they don't respond anymore. Um, the whole regime change over there was so dramatic, um, that, uh, it's a lot harder to get answers out of them, um, for the kind of, you know, routine questions that were relatively easy to get, uh, before. So they have changed their strategy. Um, the strategy, the, the track that they're on now seems to be sort of an extension of, uh, of that new thing. I mean, I, you know. I am just not a fan of the way that they've conducted themselves here, but you know, I don't think that will come as a big surprise to anyone that's been listening for a while. I've been complaining about it for a long time. Yeah. All right. Enough uh, complaining about win today. I'm sure um, I'll continue to do that. One thing I would say, though, it's interesting to compare 
I think it, as a project, it'd be interesting to compare the way Win markets, the way the Win USA operation works versus the Win China operation. And clearly, you know, it's a different market and different customers that they're targeting, so they shouldn't necessarily be the same. But um, yeah, I think it is interesting to see how they target both of those different markets and the kinds of things that they would maybe try in one that they would never even consider in another. Uh, I, I mean, you could, you might be able to make an argument that they have. Not given up is definitely not the right way to put it because the U.S. still makes money. They have a huge investment there in, in property and facilities. But clearly, the place that they care about is China. <laughs> if they had to pick one, <laughs> I think they'd let Las Vegas go away, <laughs> right? If they had to, I mean, just by the numbers alone, right? I mean, if they if you were forced with a choice, you would pick China. And so I think. Uh, is is some of this um, because people people in charge have taken their eye off the Nevada ball and have put it on the Macau ball? I don't know. Anyway, go where, the, go where the money is. If the if the economy is booming in China and people have expendable income, well, pick their pockets because you can't pick in. You can't get money out of a pocket that's empty. You right. Know? Well, which I, is what's happening here. I wouldn't. You know, I don't. I, they are making so much more of their their money from China. I don't necessarily think it's wrong to spend more time considering it and be more aggressive about investing in those opportunities. I mean, that sort of just makes sense. But uh, it, it is interesting to see how um, the changes that they've made in, in Nevada as China has been on such a huge ascendance and see if there is any relationship there. And maybe not. I mean, it you know – even though China is such a huge focus of their business, Steve is still still spends more time in uh, the U.S. than in China. So he's, in theory, seeing this stuff as he's walking around. But um, who knows? I assume it will continue to degrade to the point where I you know, don't even want to go in there anymore. But maybe they'll turn it around. We shall see. But I want to talk about another um, exciting and uplifting topic, which is Atlantic City. And um, Dave, you were, you know, last time on the show we had uh, a big segment on Chuck's trip to Atlantic City, which was the first in a long time. I think Chuck, I don't want to speak for you, but I got the impression that uh, it was really um, a lot of fun to go back, and it sounded like it felt like you got some renewed optimism in what some of the people were doing there. Um, yes. And so, Dave, you were there, and you know, obviously, Atlantic City is your hometown, so it's got a whole nother level of connection to you. You wrote in Vegas 7 um, about your homecoming a bit, and I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit about what you wrote and uh, talk a little bit about how your trip went. Yeah, it's a little bit more introspective of a piece than I usually do. It's almost a little essay just reflecting on where Atlantic City has come. It had been about two years since I'd been there. And there just seemed to be a big change. And some ways it was a change for the better, some ways not so much for the better. It's definitely been tough for the city. The revenues have gone down. A couple of casinos are kind of teetering on the edge of going out of business bankruptcy, so that's not good. But there is some hope with Revel, which Chuck covered in our last installment, and I went back and I went. I looked at that too, and I've definitely got a lot to say about that. But I think what struck me was that in Atlantic City, growing up, there's always the sense that our best days were behind us and that we were sort of living in the, I guess, Bronze Age. You know, there had been the Golden Age way back in the 19th century, then the Silver Age 
in the 50s when Sinatra was coming to town, when the city was, was already declining. And then by the time I was old enough to realize what was going on, we were really kind of in the, the dark age and things were bad. Then the casinos came in and things seemed to be going a lot better and they were going better. There's a lot of jobs, but it really didn't lead to this bigger renaissance in the city. So, and also they, the casinos, because they were pretty short-sighted, didn't try to expand beyond just being slot parlors. So when they started opening up more uh, slot halls closer to where people lived, they naturally declined. They didn't do what Vegas did in the 90s. So imagine if all of the, if, if downtown was all of Vegas, that would pretty much be, that's pretty much what Atlantic City is like, um, with a couple, couple of exceptions. So pretty much, I, I just took a look at that and was kind of riffing on that and had the freedom to develop that, which is good. In general, more trip report sort of stuff. I, I thought it was really interesting. I checked out the Atlantic Club, which is a property I have a pretty long history with. I actually worked there back when it was Bally's Grand. There used to be an ice cream parlor in that area that's now the Dizzy, I don't think it's a Dizzy Dolphin. That area, that lounge area used to be an ice cream place. And I had a job there when I was like 15, I think, which was very interesting. So walking around was really kind of strange because not a lot has changed, not as much as you would think. They put down new carpet on the floor in the casino, didn't change too much else. The customer service is very interesting because what they're trying to do is run it as a value proposition. So it's fascinating because the same thing is what they've tried to do and what they're failing at horribly horribly with the LVH, which is take a historic property and running it, run it as a value proposition. They're trying to do it with the Atlantic Club, which used to be the Atlantic City Hilton, which used to be Bally's Grand and the Golden Nugget. And I think it's succeeding. The numbers seem to be turning around, uh, looking at their win per – and hang on a second while I pull up this exact – file here so I can get this totally right. My 2012 database. So looking at, for example, slot win has gone up very impressively, has really, has just about doubled since uh, January. Uh, January was like 6 million. July, it's 13 million. A lot of that's, that's because of the seasonality, but that's still pretty impressive. So they're, they're actually, they're they're doing a pretty good job with that. I th- actually, let me also look at the win per slot, which is also fun. I mean, that's also gone up very impressively, although they've gotten, gotten rid of some slot machines. It's interesting, though, because it's still kind of neither here nor there. The customer service was really uneven. So I was walking around on the first floor and uh, had a baby stroller with me. And I was just kind of cruising around, figure I'd go upstairs and check out maybe you need a restaurant. So I go up to the second floor there and I'm kind of tooling around and a security guard just kind of says to me, like, where are you going? <laughs> so I just look at her like, huh? Like, what? What are you trying to find? And I'm just, my jaw kind of dropped and I was, tr- I was trying to say, well, I'm looking for a place to spend my money. <laughs> and I just kind of stared at her like, huh? And she's like, well, the restaurants are down there if that's where you want to go. Uh-huh. So I'm like, okay, like, uh, lady, yeah. there's nothing nearly that valuable on the second floor 
of the Atlantic Club that a guy with a baby stroller is going to pose a threat. <laughs> you know, it's like there. I don't know what you're protecting on the other end of the the floor, but there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. So, kind of stroll down there. It was pretty cool. It was, you know, the went, ate, had lunch at the coffee shop, which was decently priced, pretty big portions. You know, um, I think it ended up being like twelve bucks for a fish sandwich. So it's like meh, like about what you would expect to pay in a coffee shop, I guess. It was. It seemed kind of nice. Place actually seemed was more full than the Harrah's coffee shop that I infamously went to and got my Caesar salad at uh, about a month <laughs> or so ago. So it was, you know, it was kind of fun. I liked it. Was gonna go sign up for a, for a slot card and maybe play a little bit, but couldn't find the slot club and didn't feel like asking and getting talked down to. So ate lunch and left. It's amazing how one person can really taint your experience because all that guard had to say is, can I help you? Yeah. So you like, know, where, where are you going? <laughs> and it, it changes the whole thing. Basically, they'll cut you off from getting into trouble by addressing you, and they might actually help you, and it becomes a positive sort of experience, not an accusatory one. Right. Yeah, and the morale in general didn't seem too high. I didn't play in the tables, but cruising around, you just didn't see a lot of happy faces, which I know was the norm for most dealers that I've known. You know, aren't really Mr. Happy Sunshine, but they just had that kind of kick dog look yeah. that, that you get when you, you don't know if your property is going to be open in another, you know after September. Right. So it was very it, – it was – interesting i really hope they make it there's a lot of stuff that i liked about what they're doing i i don't know if they're going for the local market i don't know how big that is and again like if you're doing your your place of value proposition you got a 12 dollar fish sandwich i don't know i mean it's not it's definitely not more value than you would you know if they're going for the fast food demo you're not going to get that if they're going for fast casual it's still not at that price point of a fast casual place, so I don't know. Not not a bad casino coffee shop, though. So, you know, and I enjoyed it. I'm not going to lie. I had fun, but I don't know. Uh, the other place I spent a lot of time was Revel. And I wrote a little something for Two-Way Hard 3 about that. And pretty, I don't know, Hunter, do you have any questions about that for me? Well, to, to... I, I, I am, I do want to talk to you about Revel. Yeah. I want to just, I want to know what you think. I mean, you know, we talked about it extensively last time. So now we're, you know, at, I am the only one now that hasn't been there. Um, so I'm curious, uh, without necessarily retreading too much of our conversation from last time, but you know, you had, we had our conversation, you had, you I'm sure had read stuff in the press, you'd heard what Chuck had thought, and then you got to see it for yourself. So how did it compare based on the picture you had put in your mind? Uh, what we, How did it compare to your expectations? It was about the same. It did remind me a lot of the Cosmopolitan in a lot of ways, but with a lot less foot traffic than the Cosmopolitan. And I was there from about like 10 to 11 at night on a weeknight during the summer. And there seemed to be a lot of people there were, you know, right outside in the boardwalk, there were a lot of club-type looking people smoking. <laughs> I generally, I, again, I thought the place was really cool. There were a lot of really cool restaurants that I, you know, if I'd have gone there for dinner, I would have tried. Price points, again, seemed kind of in that casino, mad zone, where it's not like, you know, not Guy Savoie. Like, right. oh, my God, this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing, but not like... 
oh, cool, this is really cheap. I think I'll eat here. So it was kind of like moderately priced, I guess. That middle ground where like cool. – I like the little sort of taco truck thing they had. Did you see that yeah. near there? Yes, yes. That seems really cool and different. Yeah, Distrito. Yeah. 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 It has a nice little uh, little tequila bar next door to it. It's, they put a, a, a fake taco truck inside with a light, bright menu and patio lights over the top, astroturf, and picnic tables. It's kind of fun. Huh. Yeah. And that was something that you could never imagine seeing in Atlantic City. So I'm like, wow, this is cool. It seemed like the kind of quasi-hipster thing you would see in Cosmo. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, well, this is, you know, this is kind of good. I like that. I got to say again, you know, and I mentioned this in my review, the freaking escalator atrium. Isn't that freaky? Was like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just not the, sometimes I'm not the biggest fan of heights. And I was like, yeah. uh, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going up to the fourth floor in this thing. I just don't want to do it. I really don't feel good. I'm like, I just don't feel good here. And again, knowing that the place kind of the construction wasn't totally funded the way they wanted to fund it. And like, uh, I don't know what corners they cut here. Atrium, you know, the escalator going up 90 feet or whatever in the middle of the room. I don't know whose choice that was. You know, that also violates one of Paul, Steve, uh, Paul Steelman's design rules, which is never do the parallel escalators because it makes it look like a shopping or a corporate office building, which is kind of what it does. So he says, move your escalators around. And then also you drive the foot traffic around the property. Hmm. Which I think is one of the reasons why Paul Steelman is a Sarnero Award-winning architect. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of – I'm like, yeah, haven't been there in that <laughs> white-knuckle ride up to the second floor. Yeah, it's Paul pretty – made some sense there. <laughs> one of the things you wrote in your Vega 7 piece – I'm just going to actually quote your last – your very last paragraph, just one oh. sentence – uh, it says, I've always thought Atlantic City needs to learn more from Vegas, but now I see that Vegas can learn something from Atlantic City, the art of living on the ropes. And it kind of goes to your general point about your sort of realization of Atlantic City's place in its own timeline. But I thought that was actually a really ominous and interesting way to close out your piece. It really seemed to suggest, at least to me, that you don't see – that you see more tough times ahead for Las Vegas. Is that the way you feel? I think we've got to prepare for them. And again, growing, growing up in Atlantic City, it's like, okay, so we get casino gaming in 1976. Right away, they're talking about having referendums in New York and Florida. The one in New York doesn't happen. The one in Florida in 78 fails. And there was the idea like, oh, my God, we've got to get these casinos open as quickly as possible and get the money rolling in. And then once that happened and no other states legalized casinos in the early 80s, I think everybody got really complacent. Then when Foxwoods opened up, which I think was 92, it was still the idea of we're going to stick our heads in the sand. We don't want to believe that this is happening. This doesn't really matter. It's not really competition. Same thing with riverboat gambling, which started around the same time in 91. And then Delaware came online, I think, in 95, 96 in that time frame. And it wasn't until Pennsylvania legalized slots, I think they started in 2006, that it really sunk home, I think, and people really realized, like, oh, my God, there are a lot of other places to go and gamble. And I'm afraid that that's same mentality is in Las Vegas. You know, having been out of Atlantic City for about 11 years now, I can look back and say like, oh my God, the city's so parochial and they have only themselves to blame for not being aware of what's going on around them. And 
Now, how do I know that that's not happening in Las Vegas? You know, yeah, we think we've got everything going. We There's obviously in the media a lot of positive stories, and there should be positive stories, and I don't want to be one of those people who's defeatist and gloom and doom and, you know, like Eeyore or something and, oh, poor us. But I think you've got to be realistic about it. And, you know, as far as a global gaming capital, that's gone to Macau, and that's going to stay there. Unless it goes to someplace else in China, probably, and or Japan, should Japan happen, so that's that's gone. Within the U.S., there's a lot of competition, so I don't think we can be complacent about it. And I think that's kind of where I was going with that. Like, hey, the next ten or twenty years might be pretty tough, and there's going to be a lot of tough decisions to make. And if we make the wrong ones, we are going to end up end up like Atlantic City. You know, another thing about Atlantic City that people still refuse to acknowledge is that from 19 – I'm probably going to get the date wrong here, but I believe it's from 1983 to 1999, Atlantic City casinos earned more gaming revenue each year than the Las Vegas Strip casinos. They beat the Las Vegas Strip for that 16 years. And you know, Las Vegas could say, well, if you factor in the rest of Clark County, we're still on top, so it doesn't really matter. But at one point, they could have been a real challenger. You know, and I think now the city is like maybe the fourth biggest gaming market in the country. But I mean, Las Vegas has had competition for quite a while. That when Indian casinos, especially in California, started to oh, proliferate, I mean, the, we heard uh, that it was going to be the end of Las Vegas. But then Las Vegas went through one of its you know biggest booms in terms of um, you know revenues coming from the strip. So, do you see something as having changed? Or um, is this just sort of an sort of a natural evolution of a mar- of a more mature market? I think it's a natural evolution. I think you're going to see a lot more creative destruction, and I also think that online gaming is probably going to change things more than we realize. Oh boy! I think that <laughs> I think I like that. Oh boy! I think that <laughs> right now, and I'm working on a I'm in the very early stages of writing a, an academic article about this, so forgive me if I go into academic speak. You know, if you look at the history of gaming, in when gaming came to Atlantic City, first the Nevada casinos fought it, fought it, fought it. I read a really interesting article going, I forget, I think it was, in, it was might have been in the LA Times, I forget where, but I quoted it in another article I did where they basically were sort of simulcasting the first roll of the dice in Atlantic City with a bunch of people sitting around a table in Las Vegas, decision makers, people like Hank Greenspun, and they were just so hostile and sullen, and the visual was just, oh my God, resorts is packed in Atlantic City, and here, you know, it's seven in the morning, so naturally the Sahara is empty, but oh my God, you know, Las Vegas has passed the torch. So there just seemed that total, first they hated it. Then they realize, like, hey, if we can run casinos there, we can make more money, which is exactly the same thing with happen, which happened with Riverboat Gaming and exactly the same thing that happened eventually with Indian Gaming, which first they fought tooth and nail, and then they said, oh, hey, we can, we can get a part of this. I think that's exactly what's happened with Internet Gaming, but I think Internet Gaming isn't necessarily going to – I don't think the transition is going to be as easy as they think. Yeah. And I think there's going to be some out – outside of Vegas, maybe even outside of the U.S., companies that are going to be strong. So I don't know. You know, I don't know what the future is going to bring. But I think it, being complacent and just thinking that, hey, we're going to be on top because we're Vegas and we're number one, I don't think that's going to cut it. 
Yeah. Well, I want to spend, I mean, sometime in the future, I do want to talk more in depth about some of the internet gaming stuff, but I will admit that I am not, uh, I haven't been keeping a close thumb on any of it. So until I can speak about it with some level of degree of intelligence, I have been avoiding the topic more or less, but it does seem like that drum beats getting louder and louder. Things are definitely moving uh, forward, albeit slowly, but um, you know, it definitely seems like uh, at some point it's going to be unavoidable, and you won't be able to. You'll have to talk about it if you want to. I think it is, and I think there's basically we've heard from two. There's really two voices out there. You know, one of them says this is a future, and this is awesome, and this is going to be great, and it's going to be all things to all people. The other one says that well, this is horrible. We can't allow this. Allow people to use the internet or their mobile devices to gamble and it's going to be an end of civilization and I think probably they're both wrong you know I think if you look at it just as another form of commerce this is exactly where everything else is going you know I don't even know what percentage of things are bought online as opposed to in stores these days but I imagine it's a pretty big percentage and you know I'm sure if you look at small Music and bookstores, they would probably not like the way that book and music sales have gone since the advent of the internet. But what are you going to do? You're going to outlaw Amazon and iTunes? I mean, you can't really roll the clock back. So I think the same thing's going to happen with gambling, and I think it's not going to be quite as smooth as people think. Yeah, I think it definitely is interesting, but um, I think the the meat of that discussion uh, will have to be save for another day when I actually have some idea of what I'm talking about. Um, not that that stops me uh, on most topics, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, at least I, I have to know enough to bullshit well. <laughs> these are all bricks in the wall, though. You know, each one of these is another pin in the big balloon. You know, the, the encroaching of casinos in every friggin' neighborhood – you know, and then you top the internet on top of it where folks, if they just want to have a gamble, they don't need to drive to Vegas or fly to right. wherever. You know? And I think like, it's all sort of the gamification of society too, right? Everything is now yeah. a game to try and get you to participate. How can I get somebody to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily want to do? I'll make it yeah. – turn it into some kind of a game so you have incentive to be a part of it. And if you can add wagering on top of that. Um, you know, it's not hard to see why some of these companies are so excited about the potential and why, even though now it's not legal in the many, many places, they're sort of positioning themselves for what I, what I guess they assume is an eventuality. Um, because, you know, some people are going to make a lot of money. Um, all right. I want to move on and talk about something else. Um, so let's see, we're going to run out of time here. So I think I'm going to jump ahead to a not-at-all-controversial topic, which is this. <laughs> uh, are Las Vegas media outlets in the tank for the casinos? Um, so this is something, a topic we've talked about a lot in various forums. Um, and so to paint with a wide brush and to overly characterize, I think that there's definitely a feeling out there that um, if you're writing for, you know, m many media outlets in, in Las Vegas, you better know what's good for you and you don't say something that's bad about the casinos because they run the town and 
tourism is key for the city and why would we ever say anything bad? We want people to come here. So it's a lot of happy stories that if you read them, if, if you're just pop, bopping in for the weekend and you read the newspaper, it's one thing. But if you read them day in and day out and you're like, really, seriously? I mean, it's like there's never anything that's all that negative. Um, so I think what I want to do is do a little devil's advocate thing here. And I think, Chuck, maybe I'll direct this at you. Because, um, you know, you've been a, sort of a fiercely independent publisher for quite a while now. Um, so I think maybe I'll do this. I'm going to pretend to be, um, you know, someone that is that makes their money off of, uh, off of Las Vegas tourism. And I'm going to ask you about your position and why my position might be wrong. Or maybe you don't think it's wrong. So here, here we go. You ga- are, you, are you game for this? I'm game. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> so, Chuck, you know, I know you're always harping about how oh, we're just being completely dishonest and we're shilling for the casino companies. But, you know, this is the way travel marketing is done all over the world, and especially in the United States. This is nothing uncommon. I mean, these people pay my mortgage. Why shouldn't I write good stuff about it? Who's, who's really, it's, not like we're, it's not like life and death here. Who really cares? I'll just publish press releases verbatim. I'll publish their, their tweets that they suggest to me. What do I have to lose? Well, you know, your decision is your decision. It depends on who you wish to serve. If it's your if it's your goal and your duty, you feel it's your goal and your duty to serve yourself and to serve uh, the uh, casino interest, the, the greater good of of that industry, then then continue doing what you're doing. Uh, if your goal is to serve the truth and to serve. Uh, the greater good of the people who are visiting these places, then you owe it to them to, to tell them the truth or point them to places they can find the truth or ask questions that hopefully you'll be able through discourse to find enough opinions to figure out some sort of area where the truth might lie. You know, that's, it's up to you to decide what you want to do. I'm not going to make a decision for you. But I know I've made the decision for me. I don't, I don't give a shit about the casinos. I don't care about their bosses. I don't care about their bottom line. I don't own stock in any of them. And if they go out of business tomorrow, that's fine with me. It doesn't matter to me. But I do care when my friends, uh, people I know and don't know on the Internet, ask me their opinion of, you know, where should I go to eat? I'm not going to tell them, uh, go eat at goodness me, I can't even think of a place right now, but uh, the lobster roll place in uh, the Venetian (laughs) or whatever, uh, because it's the best place in town because somebody sent me a press release saying that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell them, go eat at Bouchon. Because I know the next time they see, I see them, they're going to be like, you know, you're right about Bouchon. It was great. We had, the food was amazing. I can't wait to go back. So... Yeah, but it's, it's your decision. But Chuck, you know, if I start saying negative stuff about the casinos, then I'll lose all my access. And how am I readers served if I don't have the access to bring them all of this information? What, well, what is what exactly is your access? Oh, free, you know, free content and press releases. That's important stuff. That's what my people want. They're just here to have a good time. All right. Well, <laughs> you know, I think I, I've proven. That you can survive without access for at least eight years. So I think just to flip out of my uh, out of my devil's advocate role here for a minute, 
Um, I think it is really interesting to see how this is a. So I, I think it would be very hard to empirically. Well, maybe actually, maybe it wouldn't be hard to empirically prove. But um, I think there's definitely a feeling amongst m- many, though I would say probably a vocal minority. I mean, I think most people that come don't really care. They uh, they hope that the advice they get is true in, in, in as much as it's you know based on uh, a real experience and not uh, something that's been manufactured. But um, I think uh, you know there's definitely a feeling amongst some that um, that a lot of that a lot of what you see is really completely directed by the casino companies and a lot of the media. And I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here because I know that there are some very very smart people in the Las Vegas media that uh, that don't subscribe to this and and maybe even if there are times when they are forced to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily choose to do uh they don't like it so i don't i'm not going to say everybody um but there's definitely a feeling that the a lot of the media are there to boosterism for the casinos in the city the sort of idea that uh we're all promoting las vegas it's all in our interest to say good stuff so we're just going to keep saying good stuff we're not going to uh, right about the bad stuff. I mean, it was, you know, remember when Hera or when the RJ was, was investigating Harrah's and their, all of their construction problems when they were illegally modifying, uh, their hotels with no regard for the fire code and the building code. And I think didn't, didn't Harris say that they t- threw the RJ out of all of their casinos? Like they weren't going to include the newspaper in any of their gift shops or anything. I mean, it's like they're retaliating against the, right. the biggest newspaper in the state. Because they didn't like their coverage, which of course is their right to do, but I th- it feels like since it is such a one horse town, the danger to for that industry to basically completely control the the perception that uh, of the city and the media is is high. I mean, it if you screw the casino company, so okay, so you don't want to be a reporter anymore, but you want to stay in Las Vegas. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to go work for a casino, probably, right? You can work in PR or. or Public public relations, corporate, whatever. Uh, but if you if you're known as the guy, the troublemaker, um, then you're not going to get a job. So it's not in your necessarily in your interest, other than it sort of, other than it violating your own moral code. It's not in your financial interest, to be honest. I mean, I think that it, that wouldn't be too hard of a case to make. So I don't. I think it's interesting, especially for those. I haven't heard a great defense from the people on on that side. Because I think many of them, A, won't admit that they're in that position, right? They try and couch it through behind other stuff. But if you could find somebody that would admit, say, yeah, I just do whatever they tell me because it's good for my business, I would love to have a debate with that person and really um, get down into that issue and understand their point of view. And maybe it just does come down to the fact that I'm trying to make money and I don't care how I do it and this is a good way to do it. Uh but it, it is it is does seem to be a constant issue. Now there was an article that I think was one of the reasons that this came up was, and it was sort of the almost the kid glove version of this. Uh, a Patrick Kulikani writes in the Sun he was talking about uh, Caesars and their giant observation wheel, which he's calling a Ferris wheel. But of course they strenuously object to that term. Right? They're they're really focused on the messaging of the thing, and so they don't like it when people call it a Ferris wheel, right? They'll start black backballing. If you say bad things, if you keep calling it a Ferris wheel, the number of phone call return calls you're going to get from their PR department is going to go down, right? If you're not playing ball with their overall messaging strategy. And it was just another reminder of how deeply rooted that business is in all aspects 
of the community. And I, you know, Dave, I'd be interesting to hear as far as the university goes. I mean, obviously there are a lot of big corporate donors in these casinos, in these casino companies, and maybe individual donors as well. And how much that even plays into curriculum? Maybe not at all. But I mean, it's just there's such a powerful singular industry in the city. It, it is hard for yeah, me not to think. think it plays that everywhere. much of a role at the university. You know, we've. I know, speaking personally, I've got academic freedom. I've got tenure, and I'm so far down the totem pole. For me to do something that a donor would, you know, say, "Hey, what are you doing?" I think would be pretty exceptional. I, I can talk a little bit more broadly about the media thing, being in a kind of a strange position here where I write for Vegas 7. So I, I handle it from that aspect as a writer myself. I'm also often a source for the local and the national media and international media. So I get it from that angle. And I, you know, am also someone who lives here and sees how the town works. So I kind of have, have those three perspectives. So can I talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, first of all, you know, writing for Vegas 7, my editor, Greg, is always pushing me to be more, be more critical, I think. And whenever I fall into the trap of kind of not, I, I would never reprint a press release, but kind of saying, hey, you know, taking a story that they pitched me, somebody pitched me and doing it only at face value. Right. He'll immediately challenge me on that. And he's an excellent editor, but I can't imagine that he's the only editor in town who will do that. So I think there is some of that, at least at least at Vegas 7, you know, um, he, he will be pretty critical. You know, I can see, on the other hand, kind of playing devil's advocate to myself, I can see other writers in town who take the pitches and press releases that we all get and just run them pretty much verbatim with no additional reporting. So, you know, that definitely goes on. I think there is a, there is pressure to conform and toe the line, but I think you'd probably find that anywhere. Right. And again, I think it comes for me personally. Um, my disposition isn't really one that's really meant for that hard-nosed investigative reporting, Mike Wallace kind of stuff. Right. I just don't think I like being a bad guy or a mean guy that much. So I prefer taking the tack of telling stories and maybe not doing it necessarily in a more in a more confrontational way. So kind of trying to document what's going on. You know, also my day job here at the university, I am really documenting the history of the gaming industry and what's going on. So. I think I kind of approach it from that aspect. Sometimes that runs in concert with what, if you want to call it the powers that be, want. Sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, some time I'm working with right. the uh, PR machine. Sometimes I'm not. And, you know, both ways I'm doing my job. So I, I, I see it that way. Now, the other interesting thing is being, you know, also being a source for people, you get a lot of people who come to town with major misconceptions about how casinos work mm -hmm. and, you know, just major, major misconceptions about how businesses work, number one, how casinos work, number two, and Las Vegas, number three. So I can understand, you know, dealing with this to an extent, you know, maybe I'm just throwing a number out here, maybe like media relations stuff might be about 10 to 15% of my job. 
mm-hmm. for the time. Probably more if I, you know, I would say probably on average, I spend between 30 to 45 minutes on the phone each day with a reporter somewhere. And that's an average. Some days is a lot more. Today, I think it was like an hour and a half. So this is something I do a little bit of. And I can understand why if my full-time nine-to-five job reporting to a boss job was having to do with the image of Las Vegas, I would be a lot more defensive than I am because there are a lot of people with a lot of misconceptions and there's a lot of bad reporting going on out there. Mm -hmm. So I kind of understand that. When you factor in that, yeah, a lot of the executives have stock options and when there's a story that reflects unfavorably in the company, the stock could fall and they could lose money personally. Like, yeah, I'd probably be a lot more motivated to uh, toe the party line too. Well, I think... If you're an executive in the company, I, you know, I'm not surprised at all that you want to express that viewpoint. I think, though, that's not the same thing as someone that is supposedly reporting on uh, as a member of the media or in some way, you know. I mean, of course, I wouldn't expect Jim Murren to go out there and say, yeah, you know, we've really had some customer service problems this month, but we're working on it. I mean, of course, that's not his job, right? He's supposed to paint the comp- his company in the most favorable light, and he's supposed to be a booster. Uh, I'm not – I don't necessarily – the casinos are doing exactly what they're profit-motivated to do. Um, I think the, the problem that some people see is that they have too much power. And I'm not necessarily demonizing Las Vegas any more than any other major travel destination. I just the one that I know the best. I'm sure this happens all over the place. Um, but it seems like you know if you, if you – if some outlets get in the habit of only running the good stories and never running anything critical – it shows a distinct lack of balance. And I also don't want to make it sound like I'm suggesting that all of the reporting should be negative and it should all be a bunch of stories about how everything sucks and how this place has really bad customer service and the show is doing poorly. That's that it should be, should be balanced. It should be include the truth, not just not a spun version of uh, everything's great. This is the greatest restaurant ever uh, because we say so. Um, and I think yeah. that's the problem. And, the, you know, the reprinted press releases is, is what really gets to me because it just – it's like, yeah, I know we're all, we're all working. We all have a lot to do. I know journalism in, in this town especially has been under fire. Everybody – reporters are covering more than they've covered before. They're spread a lot thinner. You know, I think just this week there were a lot of layoffs at the – Sun. Uh, RJ, RJ, Sun, yeah. whichever RJ. one. RJ. Yeah. And a pretty famous, uh, pretty yeah, well-known reflection right? from the yeah, sun. Right. Two of them. Yeah, so, right. you know, I know that the life of a journalist isn't easy. And, you know, probably if you went to journalism school, you're probably pretty happy to have a job. So I guess you would go along with whatever is happening editorially. But, you know, yeah, I think there's ways to do – I think there's ways to do it where you're not being, you know, Mr. Negative or Mrs. Negative, but you're – just bringing some something editorial, something critical to the story that I think is important, you know. So, like, trying to think of an example of something I wrote, you know. So, for example, talking the thing I did a couple of weeks ago about Derek Stevens, right, and what he did with what he was doing with the Golden Gate and the D. It wasn't like I got a press release and said, "Oh my God, you've got to cover this exact aspect." You know, I had gotten the press release about the dancing dealers or whatever they call them. And that ended up being like maybe one line in the story. The main, I didn't like, all right, this really isn't a news story. The fact that you're auditioning women 
to dance and deal or whatever they're doing there. Like, that's not the story. The story was walking around and saying like, oh, wow, what the renovations he's done at the Golden Gate are really cool. And this, to me, is a whole new ethos for Vegas. And this is kind of like I'm seeing the, the mob museum and this retro thing. On the other hand, the bars in Fremont and this value thing kind of coming together. And this is the reinvention of, of downtown. I mean, to me, that was more of the story than they're hiring attractive women to deal and dance. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I guess that's what I'm saying. So the, the point of it, so I wasn't writing an expose of Derek Stevens and like, oh my God, you know, how dare you, Mr. Stevens, <laughs> you know, do, have you no sense of decency left at long last? Have you no decency? Capital I was like, D- hey, you know, this is kind of cool to do this story. I need to talk to Derek. And he, I talked to him, I got a quote from him and the rest of it was me just like reacting to what I saw. Right. I think that's fine. I think my problem, my problem is, or the way that I would love this to work is that I could go out, discover, write, write a story about something, discover its details, write something that may not be positive as part of that story. And it, and I wouldn't be penalized for that by the casino companies. It wouldn't be like, um, you have to always write everything that has to be positive. It could be like, oh, you know what? You were fair. And I, I would expect that the writer has to be fair. They can't, they can't go after somebody for no reason. But you were fair. We screwed up here because of X, Y, and Z. We're fixing it. We, you know, we know we screwed up. You know, okay. We're thanks for the good stuff you said. Thanks for being balanced about it. I mean, I think that's the problem. It, it feels like there's potential retribution. Like, oh, you're not going to come to our awesome parties anymore. You're not going to get the free food at the free restaurant. Uh, I mean, I, that happens. It <laughs> yeah, happens all the I mean, time. I, I guess I don't know. I guess where I'm at with my own personal life, I'm so beyond being attracted to that kind of thing. Where like yeah, I want to ha- I want to go eat hors d'oeuvres and stand around a red carpet. That you know, to me, somebody making me go there would be incentive not to do it. You know, like oh my god, I totally don't want to do this. But I could see that being that could be in that being a problem. You know, that being said, the the big issue is access. And again, as somebody who probably I think most outside people would say is not very critical of the gaming industry and kind of understands it the access is not always incredible right and there's a lot of pieces i've wanted to write that i think would have been great pieces that for whatever reason i just couldn't get the access so it's like well i can't write that piece right and that's you know it's not like i don't know if that's not me punishing them or them punishing me i don't know but it's like well if you know i'm a writer i'm writing about this city and if you can't make people available to answer fair questions and if you, you know, are going to try, the other thing is them is people trying to control everything and like, well, give me the questions in advance and like, well, you know, I don't know. It's hopefully it won't work like that. Hopefully it'll, it'll be a conversation and, you know, I'll give you a line of questioning that we're going to talk about. So whoever I'm talking to can prepare, but you know, I don't really want to do it scripted. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely some issues there. Yeah. You know, when we, when we covered the opening of the Cosmopolitan, we got great access. We got to sit down with John Unwin and we got opening tours for a couple of days before that and all that good stuff. You know, it's not my fault that they ruined, that they botched the hotel part of everything. I just told the truth. But now, you know, 
it's like a black hole if you try and talk to anybody there. You know, it's like public enemy numbers one, two, three, and four. <laughs> you know, because you know we were positive on the way up, but they didn't deliver. Told the truth. You know, do I? Do you know? Do we have to become like? Uh, Al Pacino in The Insider, where we start, uh, you know, just knocking on Murren's door in the middle of the night and say, Mr. Murren, do you have a moment to uh, talk about something and just screw going through PR and become guerrilla, guerrilla reporters, guerrilla uh, bloggers and whatnot, where we track the story down outside of the established ways. Why do we always have to go through Alan Feldman to talk to anybody at MGM? Why not just corner them at Smith's? I could play devil's advocate and say that that is their job is to, is to, you know, produce a positive outcome for the company. And I guess you could say, if I was playing devil's advocate, it's our job as people that are writing stuff to become so essential to their narrative that they have to talk to us, that they can't ignore us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, that, that's how I feel too. You know, they're definitely doing their job. They, they basically want to control the flow of information, manage the flow of information. And I don't blame them for that. It's just when, you know, if you're a writer, you need to find ways around that. You need to be creative and find ways around that and tell the stories that need to be told. Cause there's just so many good stories here and there's so much stuff happening. You know, you just have to be creative and find ways to do that. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I guess part of it is just people using the word journalist as their title when, like, Robin Leach is not a journalist, right? I mean, come yeah. on. He's not. He's not. He covers he, – he's, like, basically one of the most um, – he, he is one of the most guilty when it comes to this stuff, at least from afar. I, does the guy ever say anything bad about anything? I mean, he seems like he lives to go from party to party, um, you know, trumpeting the awesomeness of the casinos. I mean, he's a joke in his own community. Other, all, every other writer and PR people laugh when he's skewered by by Norm or whoever is puncturing his, you know, hot air balloon. I mean, it's not. That, but, but he calls all himself take a journalist. His quotes and put them on the side of the bus. The PR people will, sure. But yeah. I'm just saying, like, the guy is – that's like, maybe part of the problem is you need another term for people that are literally just – they're boosters, not journalists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I don't consider myself a journalist at all. I consider myself a writer who writes about Vegas and some of that writing is Zach and McArticles. Some of that is in Seven and some of that is on Two-Way Hard Three and some of it is – uh Wherever. <laughs> so, D- Dave, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you feel yeah. like that's a cop out at all to say that? Like you're sort of dodging a, that distinction? No, I don't because I'm not, you know, I'm not a, you know, first of all, it's something I do kind of on the side. Uh-huh. I'm not a, I'm, I don't, I'm not a beat reporter. Right. It's not like, hey, you're covering the gaming industry. Find stories. You know, that's not my thing. I'm, and I've kind of drifted into this from doing purely opinion pieces to like, hey, I could write a better piece if I could talk to this person. Let me do some interviews and kind of write a piece like that and, you know, write something profiling something that's happening instead of just my thoughts about it. You know, I could have just kept on doing, you know, if, if I just wanted to have a weekly byline somewhere, I could have just, I could just write 500 words thoughts on the gaming industry, which is what I had been doing for the business press for a long time and never leave my office, never break a sweat. Very easy, but there, you know, I just realized there's so much more interesting stuff happening 
luckily with Seven, I've gotten the opportunity to dig into that and write some really interesting stories. So, no, I don't think it's a cop-out at all. That, that, that's where I am. You know, if I was gonna, if I was gonna say I'm a journalist and I'm covering Las Vegas, that's my beat. I think it would be very different. Yeah, well, fair you enough. Know, no more than like, you know, the, the stuff I, w- I, w- I aspire to do is the kind of stuff that they would publish in The New Yorker if The New Yorker published stuff about Vegas. Right. That kind of stuff. So it's that kind of piece. Right. Which is not going to be the same as writing for the New York Times. Right. That's a good point. So, good yeah. Point. I mean, kind of, well, like uh, my, my good friend Jim McManus with, uh, right. you know, uh-huh. his writing in Harper's and places like that. I mean, that's that's what I'm trying to shoot for. And right. if I fail, it's it's not for lack of role models. It's uh, for something within me. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I just don't want to sound like a total uh, – Leech-esque uh, windbag there. Two E's. Uh, I think we should uh, end on that, you know, high high self-esteem moment. Um, uh, that, I think that's an interesting discussion. Uh, we could probably go on and on and on. I'm sure that there are people listening that disagree with us completely. Probably some people that agree. Um, I, you know, I think it is hard when you build, you find a way to build a business around it. And you're like, well, man, this is how I feed my kids. Who are you to tell me I shouldn't be doing this? Um, it's an interesting debate. I think you, like I said, we could go on for forever. Back and, and forth. If I could jump in one more second, yeah. you know, the great thing about the internet is if somebody thinks they can do it better, they can go ahead and do it. You know, they can start a blog, they can start right. getting it out there, or they can start writing about whatever they want to write about. So I think that's a good thing is that it's no longer, 30 years ago it would have been if you're not writing for one of the dailies or for a weekly, you have no voice. Well, you know, now, yeah. people have a voice. And it'll be interesting to see, uh, we mentioned John Ralston offhand, who today, you know, we learned, um, was sounds like, was forced out of the sun because of some reporting him and his pr- producer did on some Potential, some you know, allegedly sketchy, detailed financial dealings with the son of the former governor um, in a lending institution. I mean, we don't know all the facts, but basically, it sounds like uh, sounds like um, Greenspun and Sun Management weren't all that thrilled with that uh, inc- line of inquiry. And Ralston is now going to be on his own. Sounds like doing stuff. He's still doing his TV show, but we'll be starting a new website to do Nevada politics stuff. And I think it'll be interesting to see how he operates as an independent actor outside of the two big newspapers um as if you know he's worked for both at this point right he and in recent years has famously derided the rj while he was at the sun and now he's going to be on his own i think it will be interesting to see how well that plays yeah you know i i've known him and dana for quite a few years i've been on his show quite a few times you know he does ask really hard questions and i can see how People digging into these financial dealings would be really uncomfortable, but that's kind of his job. Right. And Dana's job too. You know, that's what they pay her for. Michael Flasher. I hope we hear more <laughs> more about the circumstances. And I mean, it, the the story painted in the RJ made Brian Greenspan sound kind of bad. I don't – it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that and uh, if there's more to the story um, because it, you know, it didn't sound like – it didn't sound like – so the way that you would hope the head of a journalistic operation would uh, behave. But again, I think it's early days and there's still a lot of unknowns there. So, Yeah, you know, I've been thought the, the lawsuit trying to get Dana to reveal her involvement and all that other stuff, that's been going on for a couple of months. So that's, I've kind of been following that. Obviously, this is something that just happened today with, with John leaving the sun. Yeah. 
All right. Um, enough inside Las Vegas media baseball. I think uh, we'll go on to our Sure Bets segment. So this is a segment where we get to endorse something that we think you, the audience, might appreciate, whether it is Las Vegas-related or gambling-related or unrelated. Um, it's our opportunity to share something we like with you. So given that introduction, um, Dr. Dave, is it okay if I start with you? Do you have something for us? I do. Uh, this is based on my recent time in Atlantic City, and what I've got for you is something not in Atlantic City but in Ocean City. This is for people with families, and it is Gillian's Island Water Park, which is a little water park in the Ocean City Boardwalk. I reviewed it recently for Viva Tot Vegas, so I've got a whole review up there. I'll tell you, kind of give you the very quick summary. Basically, Ocean City is a family-friendly beach resort in South Jersey. It is a dry city, so there's no booze, no bars. So it tends to attract a lot of families, and there's a lot of really fun stuff to do there. Um, Just like two days ago, I went to the boardwalk in Santa Cruz and was just blown away by how much better the Ocean City boardwalk was. Sorry to people, to Santa Cruz aficionados there, but man... Ocean City is just so much better, just so much more fun. One of the cool places that we went to was this water park, which basically is this cool little water park on the boardwalk. Tons of fun. Go to Viva Top Vegas. You can find the whole review. Uh, we had a ball there. Awesome. So Ocean City Boardwalk and Gillian's, uh, Gillian's Island Water Park is, uh, is what I got. So that's not where Snooki lives. It's what? Not where Snooki no, lives? No, no. Very, very non-Snooki. This is like the anti-Snooki, anti-Jersey Shore uh, thing. It's like all families and surfers. It's it's totally a lot of fun. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Santa Cruz. I was there not that long ago for the first time in forever. And yes, the boardwalk there is kind of sad. Um, all right. Uh, Chuck, how about you? You got something for us? I certainly do. Uh, it's a proud day in America. And the rest of the world. The entire Frank Zappa collection is now on iTunes. All 79 albums worth of it. Uh, if I had to suggest to anybody where to start, it would be Shake Your Booty, which is spelled S-H-E-I-K. Yeah, Y-E-R-B-O-U-T-I. And he's got a little, uh, he's in a little shake outfit on the front. Very funny, the, uh, the the brilliance, the greatest composer of the 20th century, the rock and roll madman, uh, genius, epic, wonderful, awesome, Frank Zappa on iTunes, you'll love it. It looks just like a Telefunken U47. Nice. Yeah, I did get that email um, about that availability. So what, was it originally there and was taken off or is it here for the first time? It was there a long time ago. And then it was taken off, and the the Zappa family, uh, when Frank passed away, uh, he had a, sold the rights to uh, Ryko Disc for a period of XYZ years, and that finally expired. So once that expired, it went off of iTunes, and they've basically been holding on to it, and they signed another deal with Universal to distribute the music, and it's all been remastered. Original packaging, but they've done a little bit of uh, upgrading of the final masters of, of of the tracks. So nice, yeah, excellent. All right, um, I'm going to talk about uh, two things. Um, first is 
something that may not ever amount to anything, but uh, as my job to keep you informed what's happening in the world. Um, there, for those of you, uh, you probably know that I'm a, I've been a big fan of Twitter for a long time. I've been using Twitter forever. And um, so some may or may not know, if you're not in sort of the nerd world, you may not realize that there's been a sort of an uprising of um, negative feelings towards Twitter recently. That Twitter is changing the way that they allow software developers to interact with the service, and um, they're focusing more and more on monetizing through advertising, which is turning off some of their original fans, some of the people that have been on the service for a long time. And in response to that, people have there's a company that has crowdfunded a new project, uh, something that Chuck, you actually alluded to at the very top of the show, uh, which is called App.net, which is probably the worst name ever, um, but is basically the idea behind App.net is to create a service that uh, could replace Twitter, but instead of it being monetized, instead of it being free and monetized through ads, you pay to become a member, and they basically, the user is the customer instead of the user being a product through an advertising thing. And so they raised $500,000 over the course of a couple of weeks um, to, to do the initial build-out of the service. Um, will it succeed? Who knows? Uh, you know, Twitter is incredibly popular. They were such a huge part of the way NBC covered the Olympics that it's hard to imagine you could unseat Twitter at this point. They seem like a rocket ship that it would be hard to slow down. Uh, but App.net has, has gained enough momentum that I thought it was at least worth mentioning for those folks out there that are big social media fans that maybe hadn't heard of it. So you can become a member over on App.net. If you want to follow me on App.net, I do have an account there. Uh, same as Twitter. Hunter is my uh, username. Um, I actually have only posted like two things, so uh, it's a little quiet. But um, it'll be interesting to see how the service evolves. So if you're a social media junkie always looking for the next new service but you somehow missed this one, uh, you can go over to join.app.net to find out more. Um, my second thing is a real quick pointer uh, for folks that, you know, I, I haven't been posting all that often on 2A Hard 3. I have been doing some random posting here and there on another site that I started, which is really just for fun. Um, random quips, not really all that Las Vegas related, a couple things here and there, but uh, posting random thoughts. So if anyone is interested in that, you can go check that out at ruthlessidealism.com. Basically just a little tumble, Tumblr site of me posting random crap that I find on the web that I find interesting that doesn't fit into other buckets. So that's at ruthlessidealism.com. Um, I think that's it for today. Thank guys for being here. I'm going to go around the table one more time so you can tell people where they can find you. Uh, Dr. Dave, we'll start with you. Where can people track you down? Two way hard three, Vegas com and DG Schwartz.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Chuck Monster, where can people find you? You can find me at Vegas tripping.com and win.douche. And, uh, you may be a good opportunity to, uh, remind people that you've been updating the Atlantic city site. Oh yes, that's true. Yes, the uh, the Atlantic City tripping has been. Uh, we got a new dining guide and updated all the guide content, and I've been posting dozens and dozens and dozens of photos a day to uh, photos.vt. So there's all sorts of good stuff. Not not that much writing for me, but there's been uh, tons of content for those who wish to to uh, root it out. It's all there for you. You're in, you're in the deferred maintenance stage of your uh, relationship <laughs> oh, with your I'm websites. In the, I'm in the doing the maintenance that I've deferred for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So the blog is suffering because... <laughs>
to that. You know, I'm, I'm posting at the bare minimum and uh, only when the muse really strikes. But I'm just trying to deal with that. I'm going to do some major redesign stuff as well. So nice. i got a lot of projects for the fall. Excellent, excellent, excellent. All right. Thank you guys so much. Um, people can find my app, Vegas Mate, on the iTunes App Store or visit ratevegas.com. Um, thanks, guys. Have a fantastic weekend. Mm-hmm.